host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me on today's show is my good buddy, Jack Hahn. Jack, what's going on, man? Uh, doing pretty good. Uh, Yeah. yeah, doing a lot of hockey stuff these days. Oh, I love it. Well, and you're on the Hockey PDO cast, so that's uh, that's a perfect fit there. Listen, I threw up the uh, the bat signal, and as always, you came through. And answered. Uh, we missed. We didn't do the mailbag last Friday, so uh, it had been a while. I also tweeted out asking for questions, and our listeners came through. We have we have the best listeners in the game, honestly. Uh, the quality of the questions they sent in on such short notice are really legitimately thought provoking and fun. And um, we're gonna pick out some of the best ones and and rattle through them and see uh, see how far we get. So you ready to uh, you ready to get into it? Sure, let's do it. Okay, so here's a fun one out of the gate. Max Tweet Sports asks, what are some under-the-radar ways handedness affects gameplay and deployment? Obviously, someone streaking down their off-wing has a better shooting angle towards the net, but are there special ways a righty can attack a lefty? Do coaches have different roles for right versus left wingers? Um, what do you what do you have to say to Max here? So when we talk about handedness, I Actually, when I first heard that question, I, I immediately thought of defensemen first Mm -hmm. because because I think for for forwards, you have certain forwards who are comfortable playing their off wing, whether it's a guy like Ovi or Stamkos kind of loading up the one-timer or maybe, you know, um, certain players are, they, they have some some place to get off the wall and they're offhand a, a little bit easier and to create a little bit more deception. But But mostly I'm thinking about defensemen because, it's it's a hot it's a much higher leverage decision you got to make uh when you when you put a defenseman on their offside and right for instance um you know some of the teams that that i'm scouting uh they have their defensemen on their offsides on offensive zone faceoffs, and this makes sense on one level because if you if the center wins the puck back then they got a one-timer uh right off the bat which is a pretty nice way to at least get the puck at the net, create a juicy rebound, and then work off of that. Right. The um, but but then there there's a few downsides, which is if you're let's say if your lefty is used to playing the left and your righty is used to playing the the right, and you're just flipping them for the faceoff, if you lose that faceoff, they gotta cross and get back into their regular spots, which you know it's one extra thing they gotta worry about as they're backing up to defend the rush. Uh, the other aspect is a lot of teams, they actually prefer to have their defensemen on their strong side for offensive reasons. So there's a there's a pretty popular play that a lot of uh, teams would use is uh, the center wins the puck kind of back and then the strong side defenseman comes down the wall. And if that player comes down, let's say a lefty on the left, it, he's on their, he's on his forehand, it's much easier for him to either shoot or uh, find a crossing pass on his forehand. If, if that's uh, someone coming down their off wing, it's really tricky to make that play on, on your backhand with, with any sort of power or, or accuracy. So I think, um, you know, I've kind of strayed away from, from the original question, but, right. uh, you know, we, we don't see players on their off wings as much as perhaps we could because there's a lot of upsides to having players on their strong sides too, not only defensively because they're used to playing uh, 
generally speaking, on their strong side, but also offensively, which is when you're coming down the boards, uh, to have your forehand face in the middle of the ice is actually advantageous in a lot of situations. That's really interesting. See, I I read this question initially in an entirely different way, right? This is why it's good that we're, we're talking about this because I read it from the perspective of putting myself in the eyes of an attacker coming down the wing or potentially finding myself in a one-on-one situation in the offensive zone against a defender and how their stick placement and the way they're choosing to defend me would provide certain openings or opportunities to attack them, right? And, and I think that's really... That's a really interesting sort of detailed way to think about stuff. The game happens so fast and often we're looking at it at more of a kind of macro level from the outside, unless you're actually working with these players on a a one-on-one kind of case-by-case basis and you're breaking down their own tape with them and like, oh, this is what you could have done here this weekend there. We don't necessarily think about it that way. We just kind of look at, all right, what happened on this shift? And then we look at the stats after and we don't necessarily think about it that way. But I remember, you know, when I went to, when I went to, I talk about it all the time, but it was such a, it was such a thought-changing experience for me last spring when I went to uh, our pal Daryl Belfry's coaching conference in Florida and the way he thought about some of this stuff and the examples he used of the players he works with and what he looks at with them really changed my perspective on this stuff in terms of how detailed and intricate some of this stuff is in terms of that one-on-one cat and mouse game between attacker and defender and what you see and what they give you and then how you attack it accordingly. Okay. So, um, you know, if we're talking about, let's say, a player on their off wing attacking off the rush, uh, one of the the really important things is, is you, you'll find a lot of, let's say, high end offensive players they they love their their off wing because it gives them a better angle to cut into the middle. Right? You can have you can have the puck almost behind you and shield it from the defenseman's stick while you cut into the middle if you're if you're on your offside, which is not an option if if you're on your strong side. Right. But also, you know, on the flip side, it requires a lot higher degree of awareness and skill and understanding of, you know, puck positioning and, and stick placement and even this kind of, yeah, the mental cat and mouse game. So I think if you have, you know, generally speaking, if you're, if you're breaking into the league and you're just learning the level of play, uh, it's a lot to take in, right? Which is why you see maybe, you know, you have a Kirill Kaprizov or a Connor McDavid or, you know, you name it, you know, these high-end offensive players, they create a lot on their off wing. But then when you look at middle six or bottom six players, their success rates are somewhat higher when they're on their strong side where maybe it's a little bit more comfortable. They're getting passes in front of them. There's not as many variables in terms of getting through the neutral zone, and, and they're just looking to kind of drive it through and then think, worry about the rest later. Well, I'm not sure if you've heard this story. Um, I said it on a podcast a while back. It was probably before. It was last season. So if everyone, if you're listening and you've heard this, uh, you can feel free to skip forward five minutes, but I thought this was a, a good place in the conversation to bring it back up because it, it really got my wheels turning so much. So about at that conference, Daryl was talking about how he's working with an elite player that's in the NHL currently that he's going through his tape, right? And he's showing this one play with some of his peers to kind of describe what he's seeing when he places himself on the ice, what he saw in that moment when he made this highlight real play. And it involves this forward going behind the net in the offensive zone and then doing that kind of pass behind back behind their body against the grain to a forward who had basically taken their spot at the side of the net 
for an easy tap in because the goalie was looking over their shoulder and looking the wrong way. Right. And he expected the player to say, Oh yeah, well I went behind the net and then I saw the goalie leaning and looking the wrong way. He came off the post. And so that's why I went across the grain. I saw my teammate there and then it led to an easy tap in. And this player instead said, no, I actually set this up like seven seconds before because I got the puck along the wall. And then I realized that if I went behind the net and everyone kind of followed me, the defender in front of the net who was responsible for defending against my winger was right-handed. And when he was standing there behind the net, he would be in an awkward position where he would have to go across his body basically to tie up that player's stick. And so as that player came into that open spot that he had just departed, he had a like the the placement of the sticks and and how the geometry of it all worked allowed him to make this play. And obviously this is an elite player who's thinking about this stuff two, three steps ahead. And most guys just don't have the ability to play that way or, or see that way. And that's why they're not as effective offensively. But just hearing that kind of really opened my eyes to a lot of this stuff in terms of that chess match and that cat and mouse game and how you're sort of sequencing this stuff as opposed to just you know, throwing the puck aimlessly up the wall and hoping random stuff happens. And if it works out that way, so be it. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of the superstars think that way, but not every yeah. uh, NHL think that way. And definitely not every professional player at the lower ranks think that right. way. And, and it's just a matter of like, you know, if you're a player who's able to take in a lot of information and process it really quickly, you like to have a bigger sandbox to play with. Whereas if you're a player who's maybe more on survival mode, which, a lot of these depth players are, um, then from a coaching perspective, you, you'd rather give them maybe a smaller sandbox so that they don't get lost and they have some some more defined structure, right? So, uh, but but again, you know, we've kind of gone a little bit off topic here, but the, the whole issue of playing on the off wing is, you know, is this the best thing for the player? And you got to do it on a case by case basis. Yes. Oh, it's okay. Jack, Jack, we can go off script here. We uh we're just using these questions as a kind of a launching pad for ourselves, right? We can we can talk about whatever uh wherever it takes us. Um okay. Here's the next question. I got a few a few um kind of more coaching based questions mm-hmm. that I figured I'd I'd use since I have you here to to pick your brain about. Um Nick Zareris asks, what's the best way to develop a player's confidence when they've been struggling? Okay, so so this is something I've written about. Uh, in, in my newsletter in the past couple of years, whether it was talking about Alexi Lafreniere or um, I think I did Ka- uh, Capo Caco as well, um, Slavkovsky, but all the Rangers, J- J- Jack Hughes uh, in his first year. But but essentially, it's if you're a good player in juniors or in college or you know in in a lower league, and now you're in the NHL and you have expectation to perform, and and you struggle. Uh, Generally speaking, it's because you're not operating at the same success rate as you're accustomed to. So just to give you a super simple example, uh, Jack Hughes was putting up two points and a half in his last year USHL. uh, And then he gets the NHL and is literally one of the worst possession players in the league as an 18 year old. So of course there, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a factor of, okay, well, he's young and he's not as strong and he's not as developed and he hasn't learned the, the player tendencies and, yet right but ultimately what it boils down to is he's not having the same success rate as he was in the ushl against uh juniors or college players so whether it's his exit percentage whether it's his entry percentage whether it's pass completion whether it's his you know shot on net or slot shots in his first year in the nhl all those things were down because he's playing against better players so 
um, you know, obviously sooner or later, you can't really sustain confidence without having the game or the results to back it up. And, and of course, that 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 rookie season was a very difficult one for him. But you see how uh, now he's one of the best players in the league because gradually his success rate goes up and then his frequency goes up. And then now, you know, his profile probably looks a lot more like when he was dominating at the NTDP than his first year with the Devils. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a really good example. I, I think just in general, um, I'd say for young players, it's really important to, to manufacture extra puck touches for them. Right. Like I, I think it, it's weird how when a young player struggles, I think the natural refrain for a coach is to like punish them, either bumping them down the lineup, which then in theory, they're, in an even more difficult position to succeed because they're playing with probably more talented players whose responsibility and role is even more divergent from where this young player ultimately wants to be or needs to be to be successful, or they're getting taken out of the lineup entirely and sitting in the press box. And there's a case to be made for kind of, you know, restarting everything basically and getting that bird's eye view and taking yourself out of the equation. But ultimately for a young player, you probably like Jack Hughes when he's struggling in his rookie year, I think it's very important to sort of test what works and what doesn't and figure out what you need to do in the following off season to bulk up and get stronger and refine certain things and get better at your shot sitting in the press box and watching that from far away won't really ultimately help you achieve that that much in my opinion mm -hmm. so 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 you mentioned something that that I want to clarify so you you said punish right right and it, it goes back to what I was saying before where like if if a player is on survival mode and he's clearly struggling and you know, not putting up the good results that you're looking for, you got to find ways to kind of, you know, make that sandbox a little bit smaller so they can get their bearings, but without, you know, kind of choking off their, their game entirely. Without right? taking so, away all their toys. Yeah, yeah but like, so it, it it's difficult to, to kind of walk that line, especially in the league where, you know, you're in the business of winning and first and then everything else second. So, you know, if you're on a rebuilding team and, maybe your objective is not really to win but more to develop players and to maybe even tank then of course you can you can afford to trot out these same players over and over again and just kind of let them learn by osmosis but you know if you're trying to win then uh, you got to find ways to avoid overexposing players that are causing problems for your team right yeah um there there was this one instance of, of a player that that I was working with and uh it, you know, I I was on the coaching staff. It wasn't kind of in a in a personal consultancy, uh, on a personal consultancy basis. So I was actually responsible for for doling out ice time to this player. And th this player kind of got very frustrated at me because uh, essentially I wasn't playing them as much as they would have liked. Right. And I said, look, uh, you know, of course I can I can keep sending you out there, but you're you're getting outshot by 13 every full game that you're playing and it would frankly be irresponsible for me to keep doing that right like even if you haven't allowed any goals in that game it's like running with scissors eventually it it's going to find its way into your eyes and, and yes. we don't want that so 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 then you know which like that didn't go down all that well to be honest right you know, it, it, it was it was pretty you know i kind of gave it to them straight but um, but, but ultimately you know, I, I, I follow that up with, you know, now it's my turn to do my job because I, I can see that there's a problem, but I got to look at 
the tape and look at the stats to see exactly what the problem is. And I got to find some solutions for you. So, you know, the onus is on me to do my job, but then once that happens, the onus is on you to be better. Yep. So, so I, so, so it's like, you know, there's, you, you can scratch this player where you can take away their ice time or you can, you know, dial it back, but then try to find specific areas where you're having a, a success rate problem and addressing that uh, instead of just making the problem go away by, you know, sitting the problem. Well, and also when you say case by case basis, that really applies here as well, where I think if, if you're the coach and you're dealing with the players, you, it's your job also to kind of know which buttons to push or how you're, how certain individuals will respond from a motivation perspective, especially to different things, right? Like not, you can't use the same method with every single player in a cookie cutter approach and expect the same results. Everyone's going to respond differently. Yeah. And, and like, I wouldn't say I, I'm the best like motivator or like the best psychologist for a player. I, don't know. Like, I, I, feel, I feel pretty I, pumped up right now. I just like, I look at it like if you're driving your car and the check engine light goes on, right? You're probably thinking like there's probably only one or two pieces in that engine that's malfunctioning. But if I keep pushing it, the whole thing might blow up. So yeah. if I pull over or if I slow down and get to the garage and I figure out what, what what's causing the problem and I just replace those pieces, I think we're good, right? So, so that's kind of how I think about it where, you know, in terms of a player, it's maybe uh, their defensive results are in the toilet because actually they're turning the puck over too much, right? They're, they're exposing the puck or they're not making the right decisions or, you know, they're not shoulder checking as they get to the puck. And as a result, they're just playing a lot more defense. It's not that their defense is a problem. It's just that, it's just that they're playing too much of it. And then eventually you get tired. And then once you get tired, like everything breaks down. All right. There's two questions here that kind of go hand in hand. So I'm going to, we'll tackle them one at a time. Jeff Arvin asks, how does a bad defensive player best improve a defense without sacrificing what they're already good at, which is presumably offense and playing with the puck? Okay. Yeah. So, so that feeds exactly into what I, what I'm saying, because, yep. you know, if, if you're saying it's a bad defensive player, I'm hoping that this player has other redeemable. Yes you know, redeemable qualities, right? Because if not, then it's just, uh, well, sorry, but you know, yeah. This, uh, so, sorry, but, but see ya, you know, yeah. but, but if, if you're talking about, you know, a player with some offensive upside, but defensively, who's very, um, very, I would say exploitable. Right. Um, and, and I guess you can look at it a little bit differently, whether it's a forward or a D like if you have a forward, and like Alex Galchenyuk, who, who who got into a game with Colorado last night, I believe, like he's he's a, the example that that comes to mind. And you know, forty uh, former thirty goal scorer, like really good one timer, can can make some plays. But his problem is that he never learned how to forecheck properly, and and because his skating was never really good enough to change direction and to get defensive stops up ice and stuff like that. So, you know, either you can get him to forecheck in a more effective way, or you can make it so that he's not turning the puck over as much. So again, it's mostly an offensive problem for a defenseman. Um, you know, there, there are many examples of players in the league who, uh, you know, are big and strong and good and good at boxing out uh, in front of the net, but who have terrible defensive metrics. And the problem with these players uh, by and large is that, 
they don't move the puck very well out of their zone. And as a result, either they're, they're turning it over in zone or they're just punting it out and then the other team gets it back and then they have to play defense again. So again, it's, 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 it's a problem of success rate with the puck uh, or lack thereof leading to frequency of you know having to play in D-zone coverage. Okay, well, here's a related question. I wasn't even going to do this one now, but just hearing you say that, at Plastic Nettles asked, why is Jesse Pugliarvi so divisive? Watching him every game, I understand he doesn't score, but he seems to do a lot of little things very well. Now, you and I last year, during the peak of the Pugliarvi Wars, uh, oh, maybe for the first first installment, there's probably more of them to come, did a full like 20, 30-minute episode basically on him and kind of a tape study of what he was doing and why a lot of the takes on him were, were so <laughs> incorrect. Now, he struggled to my eye at the start of the season, and it looked like it was at the risk of psychoanalyzing it from a distance. It looked like he had been told that he needed to play more physically, basically. And so he was actively trying to throw more checks and do kind of that conventional power forward sort of game in terms of finishing your checks and being more physical as opposed to sticking with what made him such an elite defensive player already, which was his reach and his positioning and anticipation and, and, and work rate. And Mm -hmm. recently I think he's gotten back to looking much more like he did last year. Now I understand, listen, he's got one goal in 26 games or whatever. He's got six points. Like it's very easy to latch onto that, especially if he's playing up the lineup and, and say, well, this isn't nearly good enough. This guy's a waste of time. What are we doing here? I just, I can't help but feel hearing all the discourse about him that it's just, he's just held to a different standard because he was a fourth overall pick and he's European. If this was a random kind of grinder that had come up and worked it away up from, from anonymity, everyone would be all over how good his defensive metrics are and how good he looks, but instead he's held to this unfair standard in my opinion. And, and we're kind of focusing on what he doesn't do as opposed to appreciating all the little things he actually does do very well. Yeah, and and I think a lot of it is, as you mentioned, like he's big and he's a fourth overall pick, but he doesn't do things that big players and fourth overall picks, you know, usually tend to do, which is a hurt people, you know, with their physical play, and b score a lot of goals. Yeah. So so there, there there's definitely an expectation problem because if you come in and watch an Oilers game and you have no idea who Jesse Pugliarvi is, you, you see him, it's like, well, skates well, works really hard. You yeah, know? this guy's making four, a difference four, on the game. Four checks, four checks pretty well, like like yeah. goes to the net, uh, you know, gets a shot off without necessarily scoring a lot, but he seems to be doing stuff. Yeah, he is. And here's the thing. He's currently got a 5.1 on ice shooting percentage and an 879 on ice save percentage. Everyone is going to look bad when you have those figures. Like that's impossible to shake. That has to be okay. Okay, so, so so let me let, let me kind of like I know we're you know we're we're both Pulleyari fans, but yeah. let let me bring it back to something we just talked about, which is that kind of knowing that elite players have right the ability to plan ahead, the ability to uh, almost like play a chess game, but 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 like at lightning speed, right? And like Pulleyari, like he doesn't have that. Yeah. Right? Like for all the qualities that he has as a four checker, as a, as a puck carrier, as a back checker, like he doesn't have the elite, I'm talking like NHL elite offensive mind or even defensive mind that a lot of these top players have like a Mitch Marner or a Connor McDavid or, you know, even a Val 
Val Nishushkin, like, yep. you know, Nishushkin, he, he kind of grew into it because early on in his career, he, he was having a lot of the same criticism kind of thrown at him as Paul Yarvi now, right? Yep. So, it, and, and when you watch Nishushkin now, like, especially during the cup run, like, I think he has a much clearer idea of who he is and how he wants to play the game and where his competitive advantages lie and how he can set up his biggest weapons uh, than a guy like Poliarvi. But so perhaps it's going to come with time, right? Like, because he has a lot of physical tools and he's already a really effective player. But, you know, you, you, we, we can talk about on ice shooting percentage or on ice save percentage, but ultimately, like, it's a legit, you know, shortfall in his game because he, he just doesn't influence the game with his mind as much as you know other top players no i mean listen certainly like he's a flawed and limited player at this point of his career at the very least he's 24 years old valerie and as an example and it's easy to use that one as kind of all right this is what the best case scenario could be took him time he he left the nhl and came back and now he's 27 and, and he developed at a different rate as well I'm not expecting him to reach those heights by any means because I think Natrushkin, like, it's a bit of an anomaly in terms of just like how good he got offensively as well to match up with all the other things he did. But Lee making $3 million on a one year deal, right? Like, when you say the expectations part, if he was an elite offensive mind with, with above average finishing ability, he would be like a maximum yeah. contract player, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. You, you you get what you pay for essentially. So no one here is acting like he's gonna score 40 goals and 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 totally break the mold offensively, but there's clearly a role for him to play, a very valuable one off the puck in terms of all the things he does to extend possession and win battles and make life easier for when he plays with Connor McDavid. He just makes life easier for him because not only is he clearing space in the offensive zone, but he's actually helping him get the puck more often, basically, because he's doing a lot of the dirty work that for whatever reason seems to be overlooked. And then when some other player does it, it's, it's glorified. So that's what, that's what bugs me about it because I feel like he really is held to kind of an unfair standard in my opinion. So I, I'd agree with that. And, and but, but again, like it, it's something, something that he can get better at. Like yes. whether you look at Nishushkin or even Zach Hyman, like I remember when I was in Toronto, uh, Zach Hyman was very divisive on the staff just because a lot of plays used to, used to die on a stick. Like he would go and forecheck and then immediately throw the puck into another 50-50. And I think over time he got he got much better at it, not only because you know he consciously kind of worked at it on his own, but also he played a lot with you know Matthews and Marner and Tavares and Nylander and so on and so forth. So by reading off of these great players, these great thinkers of the game, he, you know, to his credit, he learned later in his career. And Paul Yarvi is still he, he's still ahead of that curve, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. All right, Jack, let's, uh, let's take a break here. And then uh, when we come back, we're going to keep doing the mailbag questions and answering them. So uh, stick around for that. You are listening to the hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet radio network. with more of the hockey cast joined by Jack Hahn. Jack Hahn today. Jack, I'm still fired up after that Pugliarby question that we just ended part one of the show with. Let's uh, let's stick with some of the some of the good stuff here. So at Terry Tinyhammer asks, 
for fans trying to better understand plus evaluate a defenseman's performance, what are some specific things they can look for while watching the game? It kind of ties in to what we've been talking about so far, but I think also it allows us to talk about maybe little subtleties or little like specific plays that you pick out when you watch tape of a defenseman, whether it's off puck or on the puck in either zone. What are you looking for? What are you seeing that you really kind of want to keep keep an eye out for? Because I get this question a lot of like, so much is happening. The game's moving back and forth so fast. I don't know even know what to look for. So that's why you do some of these mixtapes to kind of try and isolate specific skills. So let's talk a little bit about that here for the listeners. So I'll I'll, I'll keep it really concise uh, to start, and then we can we can kind of dive a little bit deeper. But okay. uh, without the puck, I'm looking for defensemen who are able to keep the play up ice via pressuring the play as early as possible. So whether it's uh, by pinching down the wall in the offensive zone, whether whether it's by playing a tight gap in the defensive zone, whether it's by making stops along the wall and forcing turnovers in, in their defensive zone, um, the earlier you can stop an opposing team's attack and kind of flip the script, uh, the better your defensive results are going to be by and large. Because hockey is... Hockey is a game of, you know, territorial control. And if you can make the rink really small when the other team has the puck, then you're going to have an advantage. Uh, with the puck, uh, obviously defensemen don't tend to score all that much. It's pretty rare to have a defenseman score more than 10 or 15 goals a year. But uh, on the puck, defensemen, you know, still have a very large role, which is you're just looking to take the puck from a bad area, which is along the boards, in your zone, in the corner, um, you know, in a contested retrieval situation. And you're looking to improve the condition of that puck, get it into the hands of a forward somewhere near the middle of the ice, and then uh, perhaps join the rush and sprint uh, to be the fourth person in that rush. So, you know, if, if we're talking about how a modern defenseman plays the game, like that, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, you st- well, you okay. You stole my first part that I was gonna make my uh, my smart point on, which was the offensive zone reads in particular, knowing kind of when to pinch along the boards or along the wall and keep bucks alive for f- these fifty fifty pucks. Um, you know, meeting the puck carrier early and as you say, like surfing with them early and trying to get them to get rid of the puck as opposed to sagging back and playing very conservatively and basically packing your own net, uh, which I hate when defensemen do that. I'll make another point here then in terms of in the defensive zone, when you're going back to retrieve a puck, something I've gained a real appreciation for was I just watched basically every single shift Rasmus Dalin has played this year for a piece that I wrote up about him. And, you know, he wows you with the the puck skills and like the raw talent in terms of like his hands he can he can he can he can dangle better than pretty much any defenseman in the league he can you know his shot like his skating he has that full thing but the little details of when he goes back to play the puck in his own zone blew me away because he did he does two things particularly well one he protects himself so well so if he's going back to play the puck along the behind his net along the boards He's so good at absorbing contact coming from a four checker, someone who's looking basically to to staple him into the boards. And he's really good at kind of doing that reverse hit, not to the point where it's interference or to the point where he's trying to hurt the other guy in return, just enough basically to absorb the contact, give him some self space and basically crowd the puck to protect it. So the other guy can't get to it. And then that allows basically 
his partner to come and get the puck and make a play unopposed. Other thing he does really well is he uses his own net so well to create space for himself, right? So if you go back behind the net and chase him as a forechecker, he's going to tightly go around the net and basically cut you off and you have nowhere to go. And all of a sudden he's got the angle to move up the ice. And so he's really impressed me in terms of his ability to beat that F1 all by himself, basically pretty much every time he has an opportunity to do so. And in today's game, I mean, we talk about how that's becoming more and more important because of, you know, that, that transition versus forecheck and how you want to yourself get out in transition on the attack off the rush. And he allows the Sabres to do that because of how good he is deep behind it, behind his own net and in his own zone. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to take a moment to make a point about how skill development is done for defensemen. And, you know, I, I think it's relatively easy to, to watch these Darlene, you know, retrieval clips and, and the design a drill for a young defenseman where, you know, he goes back for a puck, he cuts tightly to a net. Maybe he, he does a couple of like hand or shoulder or, or feet fakes on his way back. But the, the thing that really makes it work for Darlene and for, you know, the Adam Fox or Kale McCars of the world is it's not really the the movement in itself because the movement in itself, you can, you can learn it and do it pretty well in a vacuum. It's all about reading, you know, the timing and, and, and the spacing of the pressure. So for an example, if, you know, I'm working with, let's say a 12 year old kid and we're working on retrievals, I, I think the kid would do a pretty good job of being able to go back, you know, pivot, go back for a puck, you know, shake and bake, uh, go around the back of the net and then carry it up if it was just me and him and there's no real pressure, right? Right. But the problem is, is that in a game when you don't know if there's one or two or maybe zero four checkers, you do the same movements, but a split second early or late, you can get stapled. Right. So it's all about the timing, right? Which is why a lot of players, like they look really good in practice, but when when they're in a game, they're throwing pucks all over a place because they're, they don't trust their timing well enough or, you know, they're not reading the space or reading the pressure well enough to know that, okay, I have exactly 0.3 seconds to make this play and I'm going to take all that, all that time to make the best play, no more, no less. Right. And, and that's really what Darlene is, is good at. Um, whereas other defensemen maybe who have the same like physical talent or physical skill set they're not able to do it at the nhl level because you know when they have let's say 0.25 seconds all of a sudden their whole world is in shambles because instead of a a tape-to-tape pass now it's like they're following through into a shin pad and they're getting hit for a turnover yeah no that's what uh, the world is in shambles yeah no i i completely agree the timing is uh is everything and it's tough to replicate that that in-game setting um okay meeks was there anything else on on defensemen, or do you want to move on to the next question? No, I I think yeah, I think we, yeah, I think, I pretty, think, I think we well. nailed it. I mean, there's so many like little subtleties, but yeah, just just kind of the the little stuff, especially for defensemen, is is so important to to keep an eye out on. Okay, Meeks asks, what are some commonly long held coaching practices, tendencies, or beliefs that you feel like don't make sense or you don't understand while they're still around? So I, I actually read his question on Twitter, and I was like, oh, like how do I answer? This? <laughs> I, hope, I, I hope Dimitri I, doesn't I, pick this one, right? I, because like you know i i used to be like a pure kind of backroom like video stats guy now i'm on the ice i'm on the bench and you know i don't want to like trash talk anybody or and like i i really like i enjoy the work that i do but there was one thing that i managed to think of which is i still don't understand why it's the head coach who runs practices at the nhl level Mm. i still don't understand that because 
uh, that's like two hours of your day where you're, you're basically like it's stuff that any assistant could take the lead on and probably would prefer to take the lead on, which allows you to then either focus on some other things or, you know, get more rest or like, I remember, um, and reading about Scotty Bowman when he was coaching, uh, whether it's the Canadians or the Red Wings or, or the Penguins, and he, he wouldn't be on the ice at practice all at least all the time. Like he would either park himself in the stands and watch his players do the drills from a different perspective, or he he just wouldn't watch practice at all. Like he he'd be off like doing paperwork or, or scouting or, or doing other stuff. Like for, for me, it doesn't make a lot of sense because again, at a high level. Um, every assistant coach is able and probably willing to run the practice because it, it helps them to to develop a, as people and as coaches as well. And there's probably a time that's better u- utilized for coaches, especially considering that a lot a lot of these practices are they're kind of cookie cutter, like they're designed to get a sweat going. You're not really working on anything specific. Um, if we're talking about like special teams, what's the assistance domain anyway? So why not let them run it? So it's just one of those like kind of time management things. I understand that if there were 35 hours in a day, there's really no harm in having the head coach kind of take that time to run practice. But, um, you know, I know how busy it is and and how hectic it is. And again, like I don't travel all the time and, you know, in this, in an 82 game schedule, like I just traveled last weekend for two games and like I'm pooped. And your entire I, like, life was in shambles. Yeah, like I, I got it. It takes me half a week to just recoup from one two-game road trip, and and maybe that's why, like, I, I I'm not working kind of full time on uh, on a bench, you know, coaching staff. Um, but yeah, like any little bit of time that you can recoup, especially as a head coach, and reinvest into whether it's rest or preparation or something else, I think it's a positive. And, and just because everybody else does it, I don't think. Th- it doesn't mean that a head coach has to run practice. You're you're not lazy or soft if if you just you know uh, take a pass on that. Okay. Well, so here's my question to you then: Do you think that we have it right at the moment in terms of how generally like the the framework of how coaching staffs in the NHL are constructed? Like, do you because yeah. do you think there's enough specialization involved where like you should have even more people involved? behind the bench where you're breaking it down and you're specifically working with smaller groups as opposed to having such like broad job descriptions? Or do you get to the point then where there's too many voices, too many cooks in the kitchen, and and then it doesn't work that way because you're getting different messages and it's tougher to make sure everyone's kind of pushing and pulling in the same direction? I, I might sound like a traditionalist here, but like I look at an NHL broadcast and there's like five coaches behind the bench and there's like iPads going up and down. Like it's like, right. I'm good. Like, like that's, that's too much for, for me that that's either enough or too much. Like I, I definitely don't need anything else happening being added to that situation. Now uh, to have a coach uh, kind of as an eye in the sky, I think is a great idea. And, and, you know, I, I think most teams do that. And, and I think that works out really well to, to have a video coach, uh, on a headset talking with the coaching staff, great idea. You know, maybe even a, a stats person kind of on a headset with an assistant. That's a great idea. Um, but but I just think there, there's probably a point of saturation, and and I think on the bench we're we're either there or we're close. Well, it's a obviously a different. It's apples and oranges. But you watch like an NFL game, and they they pan up to the to the press box basically, or, or up in the sky, and the offensive coordinator or whatever 
is sitting there with a play sheet generally, and they're on the headset with the coach or with the quarterback. And then they're, they're like, they're doing it from that lens as opposed to clearly there's not as much tinkering in terms of like calling for adjustments or, or, or calling specific set plays in a, over the course of a hockey game where it's much more free flowing. But as far as I know, right, right now, like how it generally works for most organizations is you do have stats, people who are tracking stuff live or, or paying attention to stuff. And then they're scrambling to put together reports for intermissions. And then it's up to the coach's discretion, basically how much they're looking at that, how much they're imparting on their players, what they're trying to get out of it. But it feels like it's, it's, it's not, it's like a, a different way of kind of relaying information or utilizing it, I guess, in that live game setting. Yeah. And like, I, I love having access to data in the intermission, whether it's like shots or whether it's like exits, entries, kind of the transitional stuff. I, I think that's great. Um, but, but think of it this way, like if you have like a, a report, every inter intermission that takes like two minutes for you to, to go through, I think that's a perfect amount of information because I don't necessarily want you in my ear telling me every time something happens, right? Like I, I'd rather you kind of condense it and then give, give me a two minute, you know, report at the intermission as opposed to saying, oh, like here's a shot attempt against, or, or, you know, that guy is doing this and that. Like, right. It, it's almost like if you're a if you're a stock investor and you're looking at the ticker like all the time instead mm -hmm. of look looking at your results maybe on a weekly or monthly or even annual basis like there's just in the short term there's just way more noise and there's already enough noise in pro hockey like you don't want to have have too much of that yeah no certainly um okay greg shively here asks um the king's one three one neutral zone trap got a lot of attention recently as one of the last teams to employ that scheme. Are there any other setups around the league that you've noticed that are either unique to specific teams um, because they intrigue you, but they, whether they're older relics or kind of more groundbreaking strategies? Is there anyone? Because I know, like you're obviously looking at the individual tactics and and sets teams are running and and kind of how they're playing out there all across the ice. Is there anything that's really stuck out to you from these first twenty five games or so of of anyone that's kind of doing something different, whether it is older and they're still doing it or whether it's kind of something you are that they're trying out. Um, so I, I, I have this spreadsheet in front of me and, and basically what I've done is I've watched every single NHL team between, you know, three and five times and I've jotted down kind of their, the, their, their schemes essentially, whether yeah. it's their four check, whether it's their ozone play, diesel coverage. And, and I did it to prepare for my uh, hockey tactics, 2023 ebook that's coming out now in March. We were a little bit delayed, but uh, essentially you're going to have the systems uh, five on five and special teams of all 32 uh, teams. It's going to be illustrated. And, and then I explained to you in very simple terms uh, how, how it works and what are the upsides and downsides. So uh in terms of like relics, I, I wouldn't say that there there's a ton. Uh, there's one storyline that I've been getting a healthy dose of in, in on my Twitter feed, which is the Eric Carlson, uh, you know, redemption tour, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, he he's up there in terms of goals and points, uh, not just for defensemen but for for all players. And the thing that really uh, cracks me up is you know the whole time that we're we're giving Eric Carlson all of this credit for kind of reviving his game and you know doing being dominant. Uh, if you actually watch him play in the offensive offensive zone, especially defending the rush, the guy that really facilitates a lot for him is Tomas Hurdle. 
So mm-hmm. Tomas Hurdle is is a centerman, and uh, if you go on a site like HockeyViz, uh, you're going to see that uh, general generally speaking, the San Jose coaching staff uh, they systematically deploy Hurdle's line with Carlson at least as much as they can at five on five. Uh, it, it, it's very evident. And what happens is this gives Carlson essentially green light to be as offensive as he as he likes off the rush and in the offensive zone. And whenever Carlson activates, Hurdle actually comes back and plays defense for him. Yep. So and, and I I haven't really heard anybody give Hurdle credit for that, but but I think it's it's one of those things where like once you have a good understanding of tactics and the different trade offs that teams and players make. Um, like for me, it's 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 a really big deal because if Carlson is not playing with Hurdle, then he can't be as effective offensively. Just because you know either uh, he's not going to activate, or if he activates and things go bad, then they're going to give up an odd man rush immediately. So next time you watch San Jose, look at what Hurdle's doing when when Carlson's on the ice, and uh, and you might be surprised. Yeah, well, I think you know who who did give. Hurdle credit the San Jose Sharks with the contract they gave him last uh, last season. So he's uh, he's getting uh, compensated accordingly for his uh, for his great play both on and off the puck. Um, okay, well, so related to that, Delta Proctor's here asks uh, got a Bruins question. Jim Montgomery has said he's kept the defensive structure the same after he took over the job this the, at the start of the season, but tweaked how they play with the puck. Clearly, it's working. There's a lot more East West passing, at least to my eye. Have you noticed anything in particular that's different from 2021, 2022? I know that I was watching a broadcast early in the season that Ray Ferraro was on. He was pointing out how there was, um, you know, an added emphasis for them to um, to get their uh, get their defensemen more involved, especially um, breaking the puck out of their own zone, allowing them to kind of carry it out more and and sort of moving them up the ice sooner as opposed to how they were playing under Bruce Cassidy. Have you noticed anything uh, in terms of changes? Because you know, their defensive numbers are just as good as they've been in the past. They are clearly playing remarkably well right now and winning pretty much every game they're playing. And so I'm really curious, especially when there's a coaching change like that with like a roster that pretty much turned over and we know what to expect from already when something like this improves this much, it's always interesting kind of what's facilitating it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at my notes here, defensively, no changes. Yeah. And then offensively, the, the two big things I've noticed, um, and, and you know, you mentioned the D's making more plays and being more active on breakouts. I think that's a league-wide trend. Like every yeah. single team now is more aggressive than than they were five years ago or even three years ago. So, so I think that that's it, it's true. But but I think that's a little bit more like kind of league-wide. Yeah. Uh, the, the two areas where I see more changes in the offensive zone, they're they're attacking with more downhill motion so they'll get into kind of this three players high that you'll see whether it's colorado or toronto or florida you know they they use that two three a lot last year whereas now you're seeing again half the league it seems like they're they're using that on a, on a regular basis uh on the power play they've gone to five four power play with Krejci as as the extra point man once in a while um and, and i think ultimately the biggest difference with um Again, like I, I'm not privy to how Montgomery kind of coaches his team, but um, you know, a lot of times you can get more offense out of your players by harping on mistakes less mm-hmm. because they're they're just not overthinking things, and, and and maybe that's 
what the biggest difference is, which is just like, if you stop yelling at people when things go bad, then they're going to be less hesitant to to actually do things that help you. Well, and you probably have a bit of an advantage doing so when you're coming in fresh with a clean slate, as opposed to having been there for the past five, six years or whatever Bruce Cassidy was there for, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, every, every player knows that when the new coach comes in, it's kind of a clean slate. So, you, you know, all of your past turnovers and mistakes are, are, for, are forgiven because he wasn't there for that. Yeah. And also you need to kind of put your best foot forward to earn your playing time or earn your role. So, so I think it's it's a lot more of the interpersonal dynamic and kind of the the coaching dynamic as opposed to the the pure X's and O's. Yeah, right now Jake DeBrusk is just nodding his head vigorously, like yes, yeah, I know all about that. Um, okay, Jack. Well, this was a blast. We uh we got to some really fun stuff. Um, I'll give you a minute here. You mentioned the uh, the hockey tactics, which is which is coming out in March. Um, let the listeners know where they can check out your work and kind of what you've been working on recently. Okay, so the thing I'll plug today is my sub Substack newsletter. So you'll find that at jhanhky.substack.com. And and the reason why I think you'll get a kick out of that is not many people uh you know work in pro hockey and then you know as a coach and write about it concurrently. And because of uh the contracts that I have, uh I'm able to do that right now. So I can really give you kind of an inside glimpse of how coaches adjust, how coaches teach, how they interpret tactics, how they scout players. Um, so all the kind of stuff that like that happens behind the scenes, I I try to present it to you in a very kind of plain English sort of way. So, uh, you know, we got over 5,000 subscribers. Uh, lots of teams are signed up. It, it's really a great platform. Whether you're a new hockey fan who's maybe into other sports or you're uh, a player, a parent, a coach, um, really, for me, it's the best place to get information on the nuances of the game. So again, it's jhanhky.substack.com. All right, man. Well, this is a blast. I'm glad we got to do this. Thanks for taking the time. As always, we're going to have you back on soon once the once the questions kind of fill back up in the inbox and we can, we can tackle some good ones. So for the listeners... Um, if you want to get involved in future mailbags, feel free to send over questions, whatever, on Twitter, Instagram, email. Uh, if you enjoyed the show today, help us out by smashing that five-star button wherever you listen to the PDO cast, and we'll be back soon with more. So thank you for tuning in and listening to the Hockey PDO cast on the Sportsnet Radio Network.